0: Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Head Mirror's ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Drew Smith, and today we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. David Gudis, a dual fellowship trained rhinologist and skull-based surgeon and pediatric otolaryngologist, to discuss cystic fibrosis with chronic rhinosinusitis. Dr. Gudis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we begin, I want to point out to our listeners that we've published previous CRS episodes, including CRS with Nasal Polyps, CRS without nasal polyps, and aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease. I definitely encourage listeners to supplement today's episode with these previous episodes in order to maximize your understanding of chronic rhinosinusitis. Dr. Goodies, can you give us a bit of background info on the pathophysiology and epidemiology of cystic fibrosis?
1: So, uh, cystic fibrosis is uh, an interesting disorder, I think, for us to treat as otolaryngologists. Uh, And I think it's a very rewarding patient population to take care of because usually when we treat sinus problems, we're really focusing on sinonasal symptoms. But cystic fibrosis is an opportunity, I think, for otolaryngologists and rhinologists to use the sinuses as a conduit to really focus on a patient's overall systemic health and I do believe that a lot of the rhinologic interventions that we do for this patient population can improve not only their nasal symptoms, but also their systemic health. Um, not to mention CF patients are just down to earth, kind, warm, resilient, awesome people. So it's, uh, it's a great patient population to take care of. Uh, But it's challenging, and cystic fibrosis rhinosinusitis can be a very refractory and complex disorder, unique from other forms of sinusitis, other phenotypes of sinusitis. So uh, I think it's really interesting, and I'm excited that we have an opportunity to talk about it today. So cystic fibrosis is an autosomal recessive hereditary disorder, which means you need two bad copies of a gene. To have the diagnosis of cystic fibrosis and that gene that gene that gets mutated is called the cftr gene or the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator gene on chromosome 7 and that gene codes for the cftr protein and the pathophysiology is actually pretty straightforward that protein has a job and that job is to move chloride from inside of the cell across the cell surface to the epithelial membrane, to the epithelial surface of either mucosa or the GI epithelium or or whatever it is. The CFTR protein moves chloride, maybe some other anions, but primarily chloride. When there's not enough chloride on the cell surface, there can't be enough sodium chloride on the cell surface. And sodium chloride is salt, and salt draws in water by osmosis. So if you don't have enough chloride being carried across the cell surface, then you don't have enough salt and then you don't have enough osmosis so there's not enough water and therefore the mucus that that cell service is also creating is too thick and that viscosity that dehydrated mucus is essentially at the root of all of cf pathophysiology whether in the sinuses or the lungs or the gi tract or whatever it is um, and there are thousands of mutations that have been identified. And those mutations all inhibit the ability of the CFTR protein to transport chloride. Some are worse than others. Uh, Some are quite mild. Some patients might have mutations so mild and probably some epigenetic factors that make the disorder so mild that they might not be diagnosed until adulthood. Whereas other kids might have chronic respiratory issues, you know, even in, uh, as a toddler, Um, the, Incidence is low and probably decreasing because, you know, there are different forms of of genetic screening and counseling that happen um, before pregnancy these days. But the incidence in the U.S. is about one in three and a half thousand births. And the most common mutation across the West is called Delta f 508. And the only reason it's important for, I think, the listeners to be aware of that specific mutation is that it comes into play with some of the new treatments that are available for CF that I think we'll get to a little bit later in the talk. Um, There's one interesting study that was done in the 90s that sort of explored why this mutation has persisted in our gene pool, right? Because you would think that mutations that are so dangerous and risk not only somebody's quality of life, but their longevity and their ability to reproduce, oftentimes those genes don't persist in the human gene pool. So why has delta F508 persisted in our gene pool? Why is it still so common? Well, it turns out that being heterozygous for delta F508, at least according to uh, this one study from you know 30 years ago, that being heterozygous, having one bad copy of delta F508 might actually be protective against diarrheal illnesses by preventing fatal dehydration from diarrheal illnesses and you know for a long time and even today in parts of the world diarrhea is one of the most common killers especially of of children so the idea of having a mutation whose heterozygosity might protect from the impacts of diarrhea um could have evolutionary advantages so you could understand how a gene like that might persist in the gene pool and you know it's analogous to how being heterozygous for a sickle cell mutation is protective against malaria which is presumably why that mutation has persisted in the human gene pool Um, so that's basically what cf is um and um when mucus is too thick of course it's a great place for bacteria to grow, and then things get inflamed, and then you have sinus problems and lung problems,
0: and I think we'll get into all the meat of that um, through, through the course of this, uh, this recording today. Do all CF patients have sinonasal disease, and if so, do their symptoms differ from those of more routine CRS? So
1: that's a great question. Do all CF patients have sinus disease, and how does their sinus disease differ from patients who don't have CF? And the problem is, um, I don't think anybody knows how to define sinus disease. I would encourage all listeners to look up the Icar guidelines. And Icar is the international consensus statements on allergy and rhinology. There are a series of Icar statements that have been published in the journal International Forum of Rhinology and Allergy. Um, excuse me, International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. And um, these statements are very comprehensive explorations into all the latest evidence of diagnosis and management for um, rhinosinusitis. There's one for allergy, there's one for sleep apnea, there's one for Obstructive sleep apnea soon, and one for olfaction that I think is going to be published in 2022 as well. So, for any listeners who want to do a deep dive into any of these topics, I would highly recommend um, pulling those articles from the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. But back to the question whether you're looking at the ICAR guidelines, or the European Position Statement guidelines, or the Canadian Society guidelines, or the American Academy of Otolaryngology guidelines, The definition of chronic rhinosinusitis requires symptoms, and those symptoms, there are four cardinal symptoms that we talk about, nasal obstruction or congestion, nasal discharge or post-nasal drip, facial pain and pressure, and hyposmia, at least in the adult population. In the pediatric population, you just replace hyposmia with cough, but those symptoms have to be present, at least two of them, for a duration of 12 weeks or longer, three months at least, to have a definition of chronic sinusitis. So what does it mean if a patient has polyps and is completely asymptomatic, for example? And you know, as practitioners, we all recognize that that's chronic sinusitis, but our diagnostic criteria don't account so well for those patients. And that conundrum is essentially at the heart of CF sinus disease. And that's because... CF patients can have terrible, terrible sinus disease, completely opacified sinuses, totally full of pus and polyps, causing recurrent lung infections and have no symptoms. And it's very unique in that way that these patients can have disease way out of proportion to their symptoms. You know, oftentimes we think about the patients who have symptoms out of their proportion to their disease. You know, someone who has really bad facial pain and pressure and only trace mucosal thickening of their maxillary sinuses. CF is the exact opposite. These patients have terrible sinus disease and often minimal symptoms. So back to your question, do all CF patients have sinus disease? Well, I don't think anybody really knows how to answer that. If you look at CAT scans of all CF patients, over 90% of them have po- have some evidence of sinus disease. If you go by some of these criteria I mentioned whether EPOS or iCAR, then you're down to around 80% if you directly question CF patients about whether or not they have sinus symptoms, about half of them will endorse them. If you don't and just wait for CF patients to independently report symptoms, then only about 10 or 20% will will report them. So I don't think we have a good definition of what chronic rhinosinusitis is, maybe in general, but certainly for the CF population. And you know, one important question is, why don't these patients have symptoms? If their sinus disease is so bad, why don't they have symptoms? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll, I'll tell you what people have proposed as explanations before and why I don't quite buy it, but certainly I'm, I'm open to any, any arguments that, that, that I'm not aware of, but some people say that, well, they don't have symptoms because they've had it their whole life. So they're used to it, right? Because presumably they've had the same sinus disease since they were born, right? They've been making thick mucus their whole life. So maybe they're just used to it. So it doesn't bother them. And I've heard that explanation offered many times, but all of us have seen patients who have had chronic sinusitis for decades and it still bothers them. So, I don't think there's any evidence to support the notion that duration of sinus symptoms is associated with reduced symptom burden. In fact, if anything, I think the evidence might suggest even the opposite. So, I don't totally buy the uh, explanation that patients are used to it. Um, The other explanation I hear a lot is that, well, their symptoms are overshadowed because they have so many other significant medical problems. And I think that's reasonable as an idea, because, you know, these are familial diseases. So if I have a brother or sister who's in the hospital getting a lung transplant, and I'm on IV antibiotics for my pneumonia, and my parent has severe GI disease, and I've got all this other stuff on my mind, because I come from a family where where CF is common, maybe I'm just not focused on my sinus problems. And I think that's a reasonable explanation. But it also, Contradicts what we know about sinus disease for other phenotypes, which is that medical comorbidities don't reduce the symptom burden of chronic rhinosinusitis. In fact, if anything, they make it worse. You know, patients who have depression or patients who have um, other kinds of medical comorbidities, and this has been studied. Uh, I think Jeremiah Alt did, did a study looking at other comorbidities that affect physical function and essentially found that when those comorbidities increase, so do sinus symptoms. So again, we're faced with that dilemma that none of these explanations seem to really add up because they just don't hold true for any other phenotype of sinusitis. So I don't know why they would for CF. So long story short, we don't know why these patients have no sinus symptoms or rather have minimal sinus symptoms. Um, I have my own theory which I'll tell you, it's based on zero evidence. Um, but CF sinuses tend to be very hypoplastic and very sclerotic. And I wonder if that change in bony development of CF sinuses over time somehow inhibits the trigeminal innervation of the sinuses, also. And that's why they just don't feel their sinuses the way other people do. Um, you know, I don't think there's any realistic way to prove or disprove that theory, but that's the only explanation I can think of as to why these patients don't have symptoms. So it's a very long-winded and complex answer to what was a very simple question, I apologize, which was, do they all have symptoms and how do their symptoms differ? Um, but in terms of how their symptoms, um, I, I, I think, stand out to me, one big one is hyposmia. Um, CF patients, you know, possibly independent of their degree of sinus disease, have a significantly reduced sense of smell. And that's important because they already are at risk for malnutrition, and they already have a decreased quality of life by certain metrics. So adding hyposmia onto that is a big deal. Well,
0: those are some very interesting theories. Um, so it sounds like the signs and symptoms are typically minimal. Uh, anything else really other than the hyposmia?
1: Um, certainly, they can get nasal obstruction. Um Lots of thick purulent nasal discharge. Um, facial pain and pressure is less common, at least in my own anecdotal experience. I'm not sure if if um, that's been specifically studied before. Um, and when you know, one thing that's interesting when we think about adults who have nasal obstruction from sinus disease, we think about maybe they're full of polyps or maybe they also have a deviated septum. And Kids with CF, the maxillary sinuses oftentimes uh, fill up with pus that is uh, essentially putting pressure on the bone around the sinuses, and it causes demineralization and medialization of the unsinate. So oftentimes, kids with CF will have nasal obstruction because their maxillary sinuses are essentially bulging all the way to their nasal septum, and when you get into the nose, The, you know, we're all used to kind of looking in uh, the nose with nasal endoscopy. You see the inferior turbinate, middle turbinate, and then the middle meatus is kind of off to the side. But if you go into a nose of a kid with bad CF sinus disease, you have the inferior turbinate and then the medial maxillary wall or the unsynth is actually bulging medial to the inferior turbinate over towards the nasal septum, causing the nasal obstruction. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one way that the symptoms are slightly different for. Uh, CF sinuses, and that relates a little bit more to how the CF sinus anatomy and physiology differs. And you know, we can get we can get into that more
0: um, as well. Before we go into more of a clinical workup, can you talk a little bit about the United Airway Theory? The United Airway Hypothesis is essentially an argument
1: that the airway is one organ. And it's not that you have a nasal cavity and you have sinuses and you have lung parenchyma and you have bronchioles and you have a trachea. It's that you have different appendages of one organ. And when inflammation or infection or disease occurs in one end of that spectrum, it can affect the rest of that organ system as well, the rest of that functional system as well. And um, it's it's... Interesting because uh, you know when patients have sinus disease and lung disease, oftentimes you know we'll see a patient who has polyps and asthma, for example, and that patient's experience is that their sinus disease is making their asthma worse, and 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 they're often right, but why it's happening is not as clear. And what the patients will often describe, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a patient tell me how they'll start off with a sinus infection or an exacerbation, and then it drips down into their lungs and makes their asthma worse. But it's probably not that something is dripping down into the lungs. It's that the inflammatory infiltrate of the entire airway is being triggered. So maybe that original trigger is happening in the maxillaries or the ethmoids or something like that. But once that inflammatory cascade starts, that's infiltrating the entire airway system and causing worsening asthma disease. And we know that if you fix polyps in an asthma patient, they don't need to use their inhalers as much. You know, There's, there's a lot of evidence to show that improving the sinonasal inflammatory burden can reduce the pulmonary inflammatory burden. Um, it's been shown with uh, a number of studies in the atopic asthma polyp population It's been shown to a lesser degree in essentially every other population, including patients like chronic bronchiectasis and sinusitis, patients with primary ciliary dyskinesia, and patients with uh, cystic fibrosis. And among those three subsets, um, we probably have the best evidence for the CF population in terms of how sinus disease can impact the lower airway and how sinus interventions can improve the lower airway probably because CF is just more common than the bronchiectasis sinusitis patient and the PCD patient. Um, But that's essentially what the unified airway theory proposes that we're really dealing with, one unified functional system.
0: Yeah, I really hope the United Airway Theory gains some more traction and recognition in the coming years. And I think it could even be taught down at the medical school level. You know, Moving into imaging now and, and clinical workup, What imaging would you order for this disease? Uh, Any lab work that you would consider?
1: If you see a patient in the office who has CF, then I guess there are two ways to think about it. The first way to think about it is what if you see a patient who doesn't carry a diagnosis of CF, but you see them in the office, they have bad sinus disease, they have polyps, maybe they're even a young kid with polyps. um, Then you could consider the diagnostic workup for CF. And you don't even need a CAT scan to do that. So if you see a kid who has bad science disease has never been managed medically, certainly you could start medical management, consider oral steroids, nasal steroids, antibiotics, allergy management, um, whatever is clinically indicated. And the traditional screening test for CF is a sweat test, a sweat chloride test, where they measure the chloride concentration in your sweat, because as, as we talked about the CFTR, protein's not moving enough chloride. So If that sweat test is abnormal, then that suggests a diagnosis of CF. Uh, And then those patients will often move on to genetic testing, which is a blood test that geneticists would order. Um, Genetic testing is becoming uh, increasingly affordable and ubiquitous. So sometimes people will just move straight to genetic testing if they strongly suspect CF. Now, if you see a patient who you know has CF and has been managed by a pulmonologist, but the pulmonologist has noticed one of two things. Either this patient has sinus symptoms or this patient is having frequent CF exacerbations. And a CF exacerbation is essentially what it's called when a CF patient needs antibiotics because their lung function is getting worse. And when a CF exacerbation seems to occur with increasing frequency, then the sinuses are often suspected as a source of that recurring infection or chronic infection. Um, so, If a pulmonologist is sending a CF patient to an ENT doctor, it's usually for one of those two reasons. So if I see a CF patient in the office, my first question, of course, is about the severity of their sinus disease, their history of sinus disease, whether they've had sinus surgery before, what kind of sinus surgery they've had, and what kind of medical management they've had for their sinuses. For example, have they used steroid irrigations? And we'll talk about the efficacy of that. Have they used antibiotic irrigations in their sinuses? Um, And I often ask patients because, you know, I I trust patients' intuition when it comes to this kind of thing. So I, I will often ask patients if they feel like their sinus disease leads to lung problems. And I don't make big, momentous management decisions based on their response to that question. But I do think it's an important piece of the puzzle. Um, So once we've taken that history, then of course you want to perform a physical exam. And something that's interesting about CF patients is that their ears are often very healthy. For patients who have primary ciliary dyskinesia, their ears are unhealthy. And if you see a patient and you're thinking, you know, this patient something's not right here. This patient had way too many sinus infections. They're too young for this. Um, you know, they all, they're always coughing. They're always wheezing. Maybe there's some other airway problem going on, or maybe they have an immunoglobulin deficiency, or maybe they have cystic fibrosis or primary ciliary dyskinesia. One clue is to look in their ears. And this is not a a, a universal. Of course, there are exceptions. But if their ears are clear and they don't have a history of chronic otitis media and they haven't had eight sets of ear tubes and a tympanoplasty or something like that, it's probably not CF because CF patients tend to have a very low incidence of chronic otitis media. Primary ciliary dyskinesia patients, on the other hand, have terrible ears. They always have chronic otitis media. And these are the people who have had tubes their whole lives and they've had t and mastoids and just really terrible ear disease. Oftentimes, same is true for immunoglobulin deficiencies like IgA, IgM, that kind of stuff. And there's a little bit of evidence to, to answer why that happens. And um, Rod Schlosser did this study uh, in, uh, at a, a MUSC. And, They showed that patients with delta F508, which as I mentioned, is the most common CF mutation, these patients actually have better pneumatization of their temporal bones, which is the opposite of what happens in the sinuses. In the sinuses, CF patients have hypoplastic development. Their sinuses are physically smaller. They they have less volume, and that's true for the maxillaries and the frontals, which is where we always refer to it, but it's also true in the sphenoids and the ethmoids. Their sinuses are smaller. But it turns out maybe it's compensatory. It turns out those same patients tend to have better pneumatization of their temporal bones and mastoids than wild type, than non-CF patients. Um, And that might at least in some sense suggest why their ears tend to function better. But back to the question. So you're doing a physical exam, CF patient, their ears are probably going to be clear. You know, they probably aren't going to have cervical lymphadenopathy or anything like that. But eventually you'll do your nasal endoscopy. And nasal endoscopy can be deceptive in these patients. Sometimes they'll be totally full of pus and polyps and it's easy. You know what the problem is. Other times their nasal endoscopy looks clean. Regardless, if it's a patient with CF and they have symptoms, I'm gonna get a CAT scan no matter what. And that CAT scan is gonna be a a non-contrast sinus CT. And I'll explain why I essentially get a CAT scan on everybody. But one thing I do want to mention first is that not all CF patients have polyps. And polyps don't really mean much in the CF population anyway. And that's why I don't consider it an important physical exam finding. If it's present, it's helpful because it helps with the diagnosis. If it's absent, it doesn't change my management. And the reason for that is that polyps in the CF population tend to be neutrophilic whereas polyps in the atopic asthma population tend to be eosinophilic. And the reason that's important isn't so that we can talk about histology. The reason it's important is because that changes how they respond to therapy. Eosinophilic patients are very steroid responsive, neutrophilic patients are not. And that's why the presence of polyps in the CF population doesn't really change my management of them. But Certainly, it's important to identify on a physical exam and will be a clear window into their problem. Um, But the reason I say nasal endoscopy can be deceptive in these patients is that sometimes their nasal endoscopy looks totally normal, but the CAT scan will show their sinuses are totally opacified. So, I have a very low threshold for getting a CAT scan in these patients. So, you do your physical exam, you you take your history, you do your physical exam, you're probably going to get a CAT scan. And if it's someone who hasn't had a diagnosis yet, then you could consider something like a sweat chloride test or sending them to a geneticist or a pediatric pulmonologist or adult pulmonologist. Um, and once you have your diagnosis, I guess the next question is, uh, is what you do, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Drew, and make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself.
0: No, that's exactly the next question. So we have imaging, we have some labs, uh, we may have done some genetic workup, and now we are ready for treatment. Uh, generally, starting off with medical management, what first-line medical options do you have for these patients, and how effective are they?
1: Uh, that's a great question. The Before I even tell you how I manage them, I think the the first question, and this is probably true for everything in medicine, before you think about how to do it, you should think about why you're doing it. Um, so I guess in my mind, what are my goals of CF treatment? And that's the first thing to think about. And that's what should guide you. You know, what are you trying to accomplish here? The first goal is to improve their symptoms. So if it's a patient who's totally asymptomatic and their sinuses are not causing any lung infections and they're in great health and a CAT scan happens to show some opacification or they happen to have polyps, do they need to be treated? Maybe not. Maybe you don't have to do anything. If you are going to treat somebody, then the question is, why are you treating them? And in my mind, there are three goals of treating a patient with CF-CRS. Number one, to help them feel better. So if they have sinus nasal symptoms, you want to improve their symptoms. Number two, if you're going to treat this patient, you want to try to reduce or even eradicate the bacterial burden for these patients, which has been studied and can be done. And number three, my kind of uh, shooting for the stars long-reaching goal is that ideally whatever i do will also improve their pulmonary health um, which is a little bit less predictable and harder to to demonstrate but that is uh, i guess the third goal of therapy so once you've decided that you are going to treat this patient then the question is how do you treat them and in my mind The treatment for these patients should be a comprehensive combination of medical and surgical management. There is not a lot of evidence for medical management in a patient who has never had sinus surgery to treat CFCRS. There is some, but there's not a lot. Stuff like nasal steroids might help a little bit. Maybe it'll make polyps a little bit smaller. Maybe their symptoms get a little bit better, but it's not a huge improvement. There is some evidence that using topical tobramycin can reduce symptoms and maybe even improve pulmonary function. There is some evidence that topical Dorinase alpha, aka pulmazyme, it's a frequent medication used in a nebulizer for CF patients, but it turns out if you use it in an inhalational system through the nose, or probably even in an irrigation then that can improve sinus symptoms and maybe even pulmonary function a little bit. The best evidence until a couple of years ago for medical management was following surgery, meaning after comprehensive endoscopic sinus surgery, and I can explain what that would entail for a CF patient, using topical antibiotic irrigations and having serial debridements is probably the best way to keep the sinuses healthy that's until a few years ago. There is an an entirely new set of therapeutics on the market now for cystic fibrosis, and they're called CFTR modulators. And there are a couple different types of CFTR modulators, but they all function to improve the chloride transport of the CFTR protein, either by increasing the amount of CFTR protein or by potentiating the chloride transport of that protein, the CFTR modulator therapy is essentially targeting the root of the pathophysiology for these patients. And the first one on the market was Ivacaftor. And there was a little bit of evidence that Ivacaftor was helpful for, um, plenty of evidence that it's helpful for the lung stuff, a little bit of evidence that it was helpful for the sinus stuff. Most recently, there is a medication that goes by the trade name of Trikafta, which is a triple combination therapy CFTR modulator drug. It includes three medications, alexicafter, ivacaftor and tezicaftor, and these three together can be given to anybody who has at least one copy of delta F508. So there are still some CF patients who are sort of left out in the cold in terms of this new push for CFTR modulator therapy, although hopefully soon there will be a modulator on the market that works for any CF mutation. I think that's still uh, a little bit further down the pipeline, but this new medication, um, Trikafta, has completely changed the landscape of CF and of CFCRS. So up until a couple of years ago, I would have essentially said that we should probably be thinking about surgery and topical antibiotic rinses early on. Now that this new drug is on the market, pretty much every CF patient who's a candidate is already on it. Uh, in the US. It's not approved in other in, in all countries yet. It's pretty expensive, but pretty much every CF patient in the US who is a candidate is already on Trikafta. And a number of centers, uh, including ours, have demonstrated that Trikafta dramatically improves CF sinus disease. It seems not to improve olfaction for some reason. I don't know why, but other sinus symptoms get significantly better and um, there's not a lot of evidence yet in terms of how Trikafta impacts the bacterial burden or radiographic disease for uh, CF-CRS, but it's essentially normalizing their mucus. And I mean, I I I just can't tell you how amazing the response is for CF patients to this new medication. Again, not everybody's a candidate. Whether or not it can be used in the transplant population is a little bit complicated because It might conflict with some of the immunosuppression that they need, and um, some patients can have side effects like bad headaches or GI problems, and not everybody tolerates it. So there's still plenty of need for otolaryngologists to be managing CF sinus disease, but I'm happy to say that Trikafta has completely changed the landscape. I mean, it's really uh, just remarkable how much it's improved the health of CF patients across the board, but including their sinus disease.
0: These modulators are fairly expensive though, correct?
1: They are, yeah. Uh, I think most plans in the U.S. cover them. I don't think I've had a patient who couldn't get it covered unless it was a transplant patient. I think that has been a little bit of a challenge still.
0: We've arrived at a good portion to talk about endoscopic sinus surgery, and I know this treatment has been studied extensively. Has a general consensus been reached on the effectiveness of FES for CFCRS? Um, and can you also speak to extended approaches in this disease, such as maxillary um, mega-antrostomies or draft three frontal sinusostomies?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, great question. So endoscopic sinus surgery in these patients, I think, is extremely valuable. And again, before thinking about how to do it and how big to make the holes and stuff, let's think about why to operate on these patients. And I think there are a few reasons to operate on these patients. Number one, to improve their symptoms. Number two, to reduce the inflammatory and infectious burden in their sinuses. Number three, to improve delivery of topical medications. And, you know, we've long known that topical medical delivery is a fundamental benefit of doing endoscopic sinus surgery for any patient. That if you can get saline rinses and steroid rinses or antibiotic rinses or whatever into their sinuses, um, that's helpful. And number four, changing their anatomy with sinus surgery facilitates debridements in the office. So the way I think about it is when I do the surgery, I want to set this up so that i can do anything and everything in the office after that and what that means is that when we're in the operating room i have a very low threshold to do a septoplasty first of all because i want to make sure my access is as easy as possible when i'm back in the office so very low threshold for a septoplasty as comprehensive a fess as possible, meaning you totally skeletonize the skull base, you totally skeletonize the medial orbital wall with your sphenoethmoidectomy. For the maxillary sinus, if it's an adult, I will essentially always do a mega-antrostomy or modified endoscopic medial maxillectomy, however you wanna call it, to bring the medial maxillary wall of the maxillary sinus all the way down to the floor of the nose or down to the floor of that sinus, whichever is, is higher. And there are a few main reasons to do that. Number one, it's easier for medicine to get in there, for the rinses to get in there. And number two, because that's going to help clear out all the pus and crust and stuff that accumulates. And number three, anything that the rinses can't get, I can get in the office with my scope and my suctions. And I think this is a really, really fundamental principle for CF. So, as you guys know, the sinuses function with a process called mucociliary clearance. And what that means is that your sinuses make mucus and the cilia move the mucus. But what happens if the mucus is too thick? Well, the cilia can't move it. So you get mucus stasis. And that's what leads to all the bacterial growth and inflammatory burden and stuff. Now, the maxillary sinus mucociliary clearance pattern happens to be against gravity. The natural os of the maxillary sinus is right under the orbit. So if the mucus is too thick, that mucus isn't going to get propelled or carried by the cilia up and out the natural loss. And if you do a maxillary antrostomy, even if you do a big one from the inferior turbinate all the way up to the orbit, and there's nothing in between them, you've taken everything out in between them, that cilia still has to carry stuff against gravity. So the mega antrostomy or modified endoscopic medial maxillectomy is a way to facilitate gravity dependent drainage in their sinuses in addition to improving medication delivery access and improving debridement access in the office. For the frontals, I tend not to do draft threes for these patients. I've done it probably three or four times for specific um, situations or patients, um, depending on their anatomy or, or, or problem or symptom. But in my mind, you know, we think about trying to make the biggest cavity possible. In CF, if I could make their frontal sinus even smaller, I would do that. And if I could make it aplastic completely, I would do that because the more surface area you have in there, the more potential you have for mucostasis and stuff. So you want a big opening into the sinus so that you can get in there and get the rinses in there, but you don't want that sinus volume to be big and that's why i don't love the idea of draft 3s in these patients also they tend to crust up a lot and draft 3s oftentimes crust up a lot so doing a draft 3 in a cf patient can lead to a lot of crusting even if you you know do all these mucosal flaps and grafts and stuff like that so i generally don't do extended frontal sinusotomies in these patients i generally do extended maxillary surgery in these patients once i'm done with all that I usually use the old school gloved finger-caught middle meata spacers in the OR before they leave. Oh, one other thing I have to mention, this is another, I, I, I've now mentioned Rod Schlosser, I think three times, he was my, my fellowship mentor. Um, something he used to do in the OR, which I now do for all of my CF patients. Um, and there's no evidence for this, but um, I basically take a bottle of Cyprodex, just like you would use if you're doing an ear case, And I mix it up with some surgical lube and then fill up the sinuses with it. And it creates sort of like an antibiotic steroid jelly to coat the sinuses. Who knows if it even works? But I basically cover the sinuses with that before uh, I put the spacers in and and then we're done. In Europe, um, the most, I think, prolific comprehensive CF center is out of Copenhagen. And what they'll usually do is irrigate the sinuses with colistin in the or it's a very potent antibiotic nephrotoxic if, if it's given systemically but for topical use or a nebulizer use it tends to be very effective for the cf patients so they use colistin i just use Cyprodex because it's it's easier to get in the or here um so that's kind of the surgery for these patients and Post-op, uh, I see them a week later, take out the spacers. They usually need two or three good debridements before everything has healed and mucosalized. But after surgery, I usually keep patients on a topical regimen of tobramycin, mupirocin, and budesonide. Tobramycin, because the most dangerous virulent organisms for these patients are gram-negative, uh, generally gram-negative rods, like like pseudomonas. So that's what the toby is for. MRSA is very common in these patients, so that's what the mupiracin is for. And since there might be a little bit of steroid responsiveness uh, and it tends to be pretty safe, I'll often use budesonide. And my goal is to use that for two or three months post-op, twice a day. And then if everything is looking good, then sometimes I'll go to month on, month off so that they're rinsing with budesonide every day, but they add the toby and mupiracin every other month. And that's sort of my sinus analog of a common pulmonary practice which is to have them use antibiotic nebulizers like a tobramycin nebulizer every other month so that's kind of my post-op management and the reason that i want everything accessible in the office is not just so that rinses get in there and so that i can debride them but um, we we published a paper a year or two ago of doing office-based revision surgery for these patients so Eventually, if their sinuses completely fill up with pus and polyps again, if I've already done all the bony work in the OR and I can reach everything in the office, then if this CF patient is in such bad shape in terms of their pulmonary function that going to the operating room is not an option because they can't tolerate an endotracheal intubation and general anesthetic, I can do it in the office. You know, if I have a microdebrider and some irrigation to flush stuff out in the office, um, it's not always the most comfortable thing, but usually it's pretty well tolerated and you can keep them, you can get their sinuses clean without having to bring them to the OR. So that's why I, if I take a CF patient to the OR, my goal is for that to be their one and only time in the OR with me, unless it's a kid, of course, they're limited in what you can do in the office and kids. But if it's an adult, I want that to be the first and last time I take them to the OR because I want to be able to do everything else in the office if needed. Now, if the patient's pulmonary function is good and they need a revision and they'd rather do it asleep than awake, great, happy to do that. But I don't want to require a general anesthetic to get their sinuses as clean as I need to going forward.
0: That actually transitions perfectly into the next question I had. What is the role of revision, revision surgery versus CFTR modulators for this disease in, in these patients with ongoing symptomatic issues?
1: Great question. Um, I don't think we know yet. I can tell you, um, if I had a patient who's a candidate for a CFTR modulator, and they have sinus disease, and they're not on a modulator yet, at this point, I would absolutely recommend that they start the modulator, and then we reassess the sinus symptoms. You know, there are just so many systemic health benefits of being on a modulator, including improving malnutrition, including pulmonary function, reducing CF exacerbations, that there there, there are just so many good reasons to be on it that if they can tolerate it, um, I would recommend, and I don't prescribe those, I, I would recommend that they speak to their pulmonologist about starting a CFTR modulator prior to considering a
0: revision. Dr. Gudis, this has been a great discussion about cystic fibrosis with CRS. Before I move on to the summary, is there anything else you would like to add about this topic?
1: I guess the only other thing I would say is that um, CFCRS can be very, and again, most of our knowledge and experience comes from the pre-CFTR modulator era. This has really changed the the face of CF entirely. But a lot of rhinologists um, don't love taking care of CF uh, because it's frustrating. You know, it's very difficult to get that gorgeous, pristine post-op cavity that we all love to see after our sinus surgery. It's difficult to get that, so it can be frustrating to take care of these patients. But as I said at the beginning, I think it's just such a rewarding patient population to be involved in. Um, it, it, I think it's fun to have the relationship with our pulmonologists and work together with them. Um, and they are just the most resilient. I mean, you know, CF patients have been through a lot and their families have been through a lot. And by the time they're coming in to see you, they've been through it and they are so resilient and down to earth and... Um, yeah, I think it really is a privilege to be involved in the care of CF patients. So to the extent that CF sinusitis remains a, a challenging diagnosis for us going forward, uh, I think it's it's a great opportunity for, for ENTs to take care of an interesting and challenging but rewarding patient population.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I'll now move on to a brief summary of today's topic. Cystic fibrosis is a common genetic condition that results in most affected patients experiencing chronic rhinosinusitis. CF patients may present with varying symptoms, some of which are likely to include hyposmia, frequent respiratory infections, nasal obstruction, purulent discharge, and nasal polyps. Head CT, sweat chloride testing, pulmonary function testing, and possibly genetic testing may be included as part of the workup. Treatment options include nasal saline rinses, nasal corticosteroids, topical antibiotics, and especially CFTR modulators, including trifecta and sinus surgery. Effectiveness of options varies widely and should be discussed at length with each individual patient. Let's move on to the question and answer portion of this episode. I'll ask a question, then pause for a few seconds to give you time to think about it before I provide the answer. What is the Unified Airway Theory? The lower and upper airways are physically connected and can clinically be considered as one organ. Which mutation is most common among CF patients? F508 Delta mutation. What is the mechanism of action of CFTR modulators? CFTR modulators facilitate increased chloride transport by potentiating the channel open probability of the CFTR protein. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to sharing more with you soon.